This year is packed with a lot of good stuff. First off, we go into the weekly parasha. Hashem says, build him a sanctuary. Does that mean that Hashem needs us in order to build him a sanctuary? Is it relevant to today? Are you supposed to build anything today? There's certain institutions that are saying you're going to build them in the next Bethany Dash. Is it allowed? So it's upon. Even more so, day to day, we deal with cheap people. Is that a disease that simply violates the Torah on a personal basis or national basis? Aside from that, you have things that are happening in the business every day. For example, if somebody's in the building business, but they have uh, bids coming from different places, are they allowed to show favoritism for one company over the other? If you have a young girl and she wants to start wearing makeup, is she allowed? At what age is she allowed to do so? Are dogs something good or bad for a Jewish household? And many, many more questions that are interesting, intriguing, and relative to everybody's life, whether you're Hasidish, Litvish, uh, Ashkenazi, Sephardi, Baal Shiva, convert. Bottom line is, if you care about Hashem and you want to be holy, this lecture is for you. Enjoy, share, and if you'd like to support, please do on our website, bhtorah.org or bezatashem.org. We're back here on our uh, Wednesday night, Stump the Rabbi, Questions and Answers, uh, Shior. We're after uh, some Divrei Torah about the weekly parasha and some relevant things that could help our lives. Uh, we're going to go into some questions that I'm sure all of you have. Uh, tonight's Shior is going to be for the Refua Shlema for Rabbanit Sarah Bat Anat, Rabbanit Levana. Bat Sarah, Rabbi Ephraim ben Shulamit, Avi Mori David ben Esriya, Imi Morati Doris Bat Jora, and uh, also for the Atzlacha uh, Rabba, for Oshri uh, ben Doris, Gabi ben Doris, Elad ben Doris, and uh, all of Am Yisrael and all the righteous Noahides that continue to contribute and help us in all the wonderful things that Baruch Hashem, the organization, is doing. Uh, just as a uh, reminder for you guys, what we mentioned last night, the two uh, campaigns that we have, we have the Purim campaign to help the poor people in Eretz Yisrael. We're actually trying to arrange about a thousand uh, Torah scholars to study uh, for a couple of hours during Purim itself, which is a uh, very uh, auspicious time to study because everything is closed and very few people study during that time. So specifically, we want people to study during this time. So we're arranging a special kolel uh, for that time. So anyone that's going to be contributing to that campaign is not only going to be helping uh, the poor, but it's also going to be helping a Torah scholar. So uh, anyone that wants to donate for it and uh, you know join us in this mitzvah, go to bhpurim.org, bhpurim.org. Also, as a side note, what I mentioned last night, for anyone that is interested in uh, helping us publishing my uh, new book, uh, the uh, it's in Hebrew, and Bezat Shem will be in the market uh, for free, as the rest of our stuff is, uh, probably in the next few months. Uh, so anyone that wants to help us, wants to be part of the uh, extraordinary mitzvah, uh, you could uh, simply contact us, or you could just donate on the regular website, bhtorah.org, or bezatashem.org, and uh, simply let us know that that's what it's for. Baruch uh, Hashem, I already got a couple of people that jumped on it, my dear brothers. Baruch uh, Hashem, you know, found out about the uh, the book, and uh, we're very excited to be part of it. So, that's one of the uh, great midot of uh, Am Yisrael, that's zealous for mitzvot, that is, uh, as soon as they hear of a mitzvah opportunity, they uh, jump on it. But of course, you know, one of the uh, things that we have today is that we have a, uh, a lot of opportunities to do mitzvot. 
quite frankly, if you look at the uh, history of Am Yisrael, uh, with the exception of the time of Shlomo HaMelech, where even the streets, uh, there were certain streets that were full of gold, and the uh, financial status of Am Yisrael at that time was unlike any other, uh, right now, the, uh, the status of the, uh, the world at large, but uh, also the Jewish world, financially speaking, is very good. Uh, but yet, you're still seeing that there is many people struggling financially. You're still seeing that the world of Torah is uh, struggling financially. There are many avrechim, many Torah scholars that are barely making ends meet, uh, struggling to, uh, to pay their basic expenses. Uh, many uh, yeshivot are uh, you know, having a tough time remaining open or starting a new one. There are uh, several uh, people that want to start a uh, Sephardic uh, girls' seminary in Eretz Yisrael uh, and uh, are having a tough time simply because of money. There is uh, certainly uh, plenty of opportunities to open places here in the U.S. as well as others, but yet again, there's a shortage of money. Uh, so how could it be on one end you have a, uh, uh, the financial status of the Jewish people being the best it ever was with the exception of the time of Shlomo Melech. But at the same token, the world of Torah is struggling still. It doesn't really make much sense. This is one of the questions we're going to try to answer tonight, Bezal Hashem. The other question that we have is, uh, is it uh, connected or is it possible to connect uh, heresy with stinginess? Meaning... Is it, is it somebody that's stingy, somebody that is cheap, doesn't want to, uh, uh, to give of what Hashem blessed him with, what Hashem blessed her with, uh, or even not give enough? Uh, is that some form of heresy? Is it a problem? Is it just simply a personal choice? Is your money your money, or is it something that uh, you have to think about twice before you call it your money? These are some of the things that we're going to try to cover tonight briefly, because I know you guys have a lot of questions, but uh, this is actually what the Parashat Truma starts off. We have a, the Bet HaMikdash of the desert, the tabernacle, they call it in English. In Hebrew, it's the Mishkan, uh, is uh, what Hashem commands us with uh, to build during this week's Parashat Truma. And uh, interestingly enough, Hashem gives us, obviously, the specific choice of words, to not only teach us about something that happened 3,334 years ago in the desert, uh, but rather something that is very much applicable today. Uh, not that we are allowed to go out there and build a building and call the Beit HaMikdash, that's forbidden. Uh, until Mashiach comes, we have no permission to build anything called the Beit HaMikdash. But nonetheless, Hashem does expect us to read this parasha learn it and apply it to our lives each and every single year. How could I possibly apply this parasha to my life uh, every single year when I don't have the opportunity to build the Bet HaMikdash? I don't have the permission to build the Bet HaMikdash. Uh, well, that's one of the things, again, we're going to find out tonight. So, Parashat Truma in the uh, book of Exodus, chapter 25, begins with Hashem commanding Moshe Rabbeinu to speak to Am Yisrael, and tell them about building this Mishkan, this sanctuary. Moshe <laughs> 
ואורות תחשים ועצי שיטים. שמן למהור בסמים, לשמן המשחר ולקטור את הסמים, אבני שוהם ואבני מילואים לאפוד ולחושן. ועשו לי מקדש ושכנתי בתוכם. So here we see an extraordinary statement by Hashem that we are going to spend most of the uh, time on. Hashem speaks to Moshe Rabbeinu. Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and they shall take for me a portion from every man whose heart motivates him. You shall take my portion. This is the portion that you shall take from them, gold and silver and copper, and turquoise, purple, and crimson wool, linen and goat's hair, reddened ram skins, tachash skins, acacia wood, oil for illumination, spices for anointment oil, and the spice for the ketoet, shoham stones, and the stones for the settings, for the ephod, and for the choshen. They shall make a sanctuary for me, so that I may dwell among them. Up to here, the first eight uh, verses are really, an, at first look, sound like a something that happened in history. Most people that are looking at it say, oh yeah, this is something that happened 3,000 years ago. I'm sure, it was very exciting. But where do I find myself in here? The average person will tell you, I don't find myself in here. I simply, maybe it's a story, maybe it's a uh, history, but... As far as finding yourself here and your own obligations here, a person has to delve into it. As the Mishnah in Avot says, delve into it and delve into it because everything is in it. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells Moshe Rabbeinu to get the people to bring gold and silver and all types of precious goods for it to be used to build this Mishkan, to build this tabernacle. But he uses unique language where he says, Take for me a portion. Now, usually if you're going to ask somebody to give you something, you say, give me. Give me this uh, portion. Not take for me. Why take for me? It should be give me. In fact, this is one of the places where the Chachamim explained to us that Everything is a Kadosh Baruch Hu's. And in essence, when a person gives for the sake of Torah, what they're doing is they're actually giving to themselves. They're not giving to God. God is not short of money. And in fact, this is actually one of the critical points that Onkelos the, uh, and, and several other sages emphasize the Nefesh Ager, the uh, Mizrahi, the Gurarieh, the Malbim, uh, the uh, Avraham ben Rambam, which needless to say would be also the Rambam, his father. Many sages harp on this particular point to make sure that a person understands what is actually being said here. Because if a person doesn't understand what this sentence is, can easily turn into a heretic. And therefore, the Onkelos explains, this means speak with the children of Israel and tell them that they shall separate before me a portion for the construction of the Mishkan. What does it mean, separate for me? Why isn't he saying, take for me? Onkelos specifically translates the words, which literally means take for me, as separate before me, in order to avoid 
any type of misunderstanding that a person would have that would give him the convoluted thought that Hashem has any need whatsoever for his donations or that the objects of the Mishkan provided anything to Hashem because the entire world belongs to Hashem and he needs nothing from it so if somebody has read the basic commentary of the first couple of verses of Parashat Truma at least once in their life automatically they arrive at a conclusion that number one Hashem needs nothing two everything we give for the sake of Torah for the sake of helping is really giving for our own sake because everything belongs to Hashem so if he simply chooses to give it to somebody else you can't get in his way he's just simply going to give it to them whether it's going to come from you or somebody else always remains his choice you can choose to be the vessel but he could simply force you to be the vessel if he wants you to be but either way the second point is that everything belongs to Hashem the third point that we actually see here and confirm is that some of the most popular rabbinical speakers in the world today in the english-speaking world today are 100 heretics according to the onkelos according to nefesh Agel, according to the rambam according to mizrahi according to malbim according to the gu according to the basic foundations of the torah because they say that god needs you and here this particular verse where the one time you have in the entire torah that hashem says take for me as if we're giving him something he says no 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 i said take for me not give me take something that i already gave you and put it towards the torah towards towards building a sanctuary don't misunderstand that i actually need this don't misunderstand that any mitzvah that you do whether it be donations or it be a prayer or it be learning torah or or anything else that you do is to god's benefit hence the reason why onkelos emphasizes that you need to understand this verse clearly and that's why he translates it not in the same way as the literal translation but rather in the actual interpretation of what it means so there's no misunderstanding that unfortunately has become common today now for the same reason rashi also avoids the literal interpretation of for me where he explains this term to mean that each person must dedicate his donation for hashem meaning for the name of hashem not due to any type of social pressure or personal gain meaning the uh, the take for me the uh 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 this uh truma this portion is meaning do it for my name not for my benefit don't misunderstand that these words to mean or any other words in the tanakh to mean that god is benefiting from anything that you do and this is rashi 900 years ago you simply cannot mis- disagree with rashi you cannot disagree with the rishonim there's no such option doesn't make a difference if a later sage would uh, ever say anything else or sound like anything else so here we have onkelos we have nefesh agil with Sori, we have rashi we have the malbim we have the gurariye we have mizrahi and now we go to the son of the rambam avram ben arambam 
who says that earlier in the verse onkelos translated vaikhu as they sell separate and here in the following verse however onkelos translates tikhu literally as you shall take this is because the first statement in the verse was directed towards the donors who were to separate items in their possession and designate them for the mishkan and the subsequent statement was directed to the people who collected the donations they did not have to separate these items but merely took them from the donors to the mishkan this is giving us a little bit of clarification of the process the halachic process of donating towards Torah, towards the uh, the Mishkan, towards the Bet Mikdash of the desert, where he couldn't just go and give it to Moshe Rabbeinu and say, okay, here you go, use this to build the next yeshiva. Go build Bezrat Hashem. Go, no. You had to give it, first and foremost, you have to separate it, as the statement says, as the onkelo says, separate it from your assets. You have X amount of money, take a portion of it and separate it make it it's not yours anymore and give this to the public cause once you've given it to the public cause then there are specific people that obviously work for this organization work for Moshe Rabenu, and they're going to come and take it and utilize it for that purpose but the first step is you have to separate it you have to separate it from yourself so here again the Rambam and his and his son they don't have the exact translation as what the uh, onkelos does but they're in essence they're they're learning something else from it but again they are clarifying that at no point should anyone ever arrive at the thought at the inclination that god needs anything a needy god is a servant is not a god but when you have somebody that calls himself the most popular rabbi on youtube and then you have other rabbis from similar organizations or the same organizations start to piggyback off of this heresy and then there's others that are trying to also piggyback off of this heresy in different organizations you're starting to see this cancer spread and people are starting to turn into a new religion a religion that's more similar to some of the idolatrous religions in the world whether it be Christianity, Catholicism, uh, Buddhism, all types of man-made religions that make a uh, uh, humanized God, more or less. Why? Because the second God needs anything, that means that you can be God over God. You can provide God something he doesn't have. And that is simply an impossibility. So, the one sentence, the one verse in the Torah, that a person can say, oh, this is my source, that shows that God needs something it says give me a portion the sages attack it immediately and make sure that whether you're reading Rashi or Onkelos commentary that you're obligated to do every week according to the Shukhan Aruch you're obligated to read either the Rashi or the Onkelos commentary each week for the weekly parasha you will never arrive at such an understanding which means that the only way you ever arrived at such an understanding is simply from your own convoluted mind from your own heretical mind now how could such a thing be the case the parasha continues and says hashem says i don't just want 
to command everybody to give. I want people to give what their heart desires to donate. I don't want to force you to give. Why? Everything is mine anyway, he says. The whole world is mine. And therefore, whether you give or not, if Hashem decreed for, for a something to be built, for the Torah to, uh, to be, uh, become uh, greater, if Hashem decreed for someone to have or not to have, you cannot get in the way. This is just like Mordechai said to Esther, Esther Malkad, that was the queen over there to Hashverosh, uh, but at the same token, she obviously doesn't want to be there. She knows that her nation is in danger, and Mordechai tells her, you have to go and speak to Hashverosh, get him to cancel this decree. And Esther says, yes, but I can't just go to Hashverosh, even though I'm married to him. I can't just go to him. He has rules. And if he doesn't call you and you show up anyway, it's death penalty. What am I to do? Mordechai doesn't skip a beat. He doesn't sugarcoat it because he knows there's no time to waste. And the Megillat Estel says, Mordechai says to Estel, whether you go or not, you should know the salvation is going to come. But if it doesn't come through you, just know that you and the rest of your family, your lineage, will disappear from the rest from the existence. Why? You will lose your right to exist. Your name will have will become useless. Meaning that Hashem puts you in a position where you could be the vessel that could help save Am Yisrael. You have that opportunity. If you take that opportunity, your name will be remembered forever. If not, it'll be forgotten as if it never existed. Meaning there's no political correctness here. There's no sensitivity here. There's no sugarcoating here. They're simply telling her the simple truth. You're in a position of power. If you use it the right way, it's to your benefit. If not, you dug your own grave and no one's going to come visit. So here we see that when it comes to the Torah, you're never going to find political correctness. You're never going to find sugarcoating. You're going to find things that are pretty clear. And Hashem himself is telling us, he only wants ish asher yidvenu libo, a man whose heart motivates him. He should want to give it. Why should he want to give it? Why should he want to give it? Well, perhaps if he reads the following verse later on, where he sees in verse number eight, they shall make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. Now, although the third Bet Mikdash has not been rebuilt, we're still waiting for the Mashiach to come. Had he come, like some religions say, or some people say, the Bet Mikdash would have been built. So, one of the clear signs that the Mashiach has arrived is if the Bet Mikdash is built. If it hasn't been built, that means Mashiach hasn't arrived. Because that is one of his first obligations. 
Now, Hashem says, although that Bet HaMikdash was not built, the Jewish people are obligated to read this Torah portion and apply it to their life every single year. To apply the verse that says, you shall make a sanctuary for me, so that I may dwell among them. How can I make a sanctuary? When a person takes money that they worked for, takes money that they have, and takes a portion of it that's significant, not money that he could simply like, doesn't care even if he loses it. You know, like somebody has change and he forgets to take the change out of his pocket and he throws the, the pants in the laundry and then when he realizes that he still had the money in the pocket, he doesn't really lose any sleep over it because it's so insignificant. Not that kind of money. When a person puts a significant amount of his money and invests it into publicizing more Torah in the world, helping other people do tshuva and get closer to Hashem, making sure that Talmidei Chachamim have everything they need in order to study Torah at full force. And he contributes, she contributes to the best of their ability, but no less than at least 10% of what they make each month, as well as any other opportunity to give charity that's above it. If they really want to test their emunah, they would give 20%, but no more. Shem doesn't ask you to give 100%. But why should one even work a full-time job, invest X amount of time learning for this job, building his career, doing everything possible, blood, sweat, and tears to finally make a living, and then after working all that time, getting that paycheck, and without even thinking twice, take 10% of that money, invest it into an organization like Bezat Hashem, invest it into Kiruv, invest it into Torah scholars, without thinking twice, without saying, you know what, maybe I'll do this next month, maybe I'll save up and make it a bigger amount. No, no, simply, until I don't give that 10%, it's not my money. Just like at the time of the Bet Mikdash. Until the farmers didn't give that 10%, until they didn't give the portion to the Levi, until they didn't give the portion to the Kohen, until they didn't give that portion, they weren't allowed to use all of that crop, all of that food. Why? It's not mine until I give. And therefore, the Chachamim explained to us through these words, that when a person takes their hard work and invests that money on a regular basis into Torah, but the real Torah, not some false version of Torah and sugar-coated version of Torah or some idolatrous version of Torah, but real version of Torah that empowers people, real versions of Torah that is honest to what it says, that person that's donating the money is really taking from what Hashem gave them and investing it into themselves because that's the only money 
that they will be able to take with them when they leave this world. Because regardless of whether a person has a net worth of a Elon Musk of hundreds of billions of dollars or a Bezos or Warren Buffett or all types of other billionaires out there or a person has what Resh Lakish had. One of the sages had, he had literally a couple of vegetables left before he died. Regardless of what, of what net worth they have while they're alive, once a person dies, none of that money can go to them. The only money that is valuable to them is the money that they invested into the Torah. Money they invested into doing acts of kindness that are permissible according to the Torah. Because if you're kind to wicked people, if you're kind to murderers, rapists, and anti-Torah people, that's not kindness. So not all kindness is the same. But needless to say, when a person invests that money into Torah, that means that that money becomes part of their eternity. That money is really a blessing that Hashem gave you that you are now taking and investing it into yourself. Yeah, but I'm investing it into the Torah. No, what you're doing is that you're taking what Hashem gave you and you're building a sanctuary for Hashem in your heart. Because your donations are investments that build Hashem a sanctuary in your heart. And perhaps if you think about it deep enough, you'll realize that if this is really the sanctuary that Hashem is talking about, that we're supposed to read every year, if I'm supposed to build a sanctuary for Hashem, even though it's not the third Bet Midash, He's saying, build a sanctuary for me. I can't build the Bet Midash. But the, the, the verse is still relevant. So how could it be relevant? You have to build a, uh, a sanctuary for Hashem to be among you. How can you build a sanctuary for Hashem to be among you? Now, if you build a church that publicizes some guy that died 2,000 years ago, how is that building Hashem a sanctuary? If you're building a mosque that publicizes some guy that says that an angel spoke to him in the middle of a desert and says to kill the chosen people, how is that publicizing Hashem? If you're building some zoo and you're getting the elephant a new cage how is that building a shema sanctuary but if you're investing into the torah the torah that is the instructions the love letter from god if you're investing into the world of torah to help more people learn torah to help more people that are already learned torah learn even better learn even more so without having the financial hardships that they do then what you're doing is you're actually fulfilling this verse and building yourself not only in eternity where that money is actually valuable but even more so in this world you're building a sanctuary for hashem in your heart because what ends up happening is that now that you've made a commitment not as a one time i'm excited let me just donate a bunch of money and then you don't hear from the guy for six years no you made a commitment no matter how big or how small to take 10 percent of your money and donate it as soon as you get it you're not waiting for months you're not waiting for days as soon as you get it it's like automatic why because i want to make sure that number one god knows i want him God knows I want him. I want him in my life. 
And I'm recognizing the fact that he really gives me a hundred percent. The least I can do is take 10 of it and invest it into publicizing his name. Two, you're reminding yourself that despite the fact that you're the one that woke up at 5.30 in the morning to go to work, despite the fact that when you worked and you lifted and you called and you climbed and you did whatever you did to work for whatever business you worked at, the reality is all of that was Hashem doing. You did not do all that work. Why? Because the strength to do the work, who gave it to you? The ability to do that work, who gave it to you? The job itself, who gave it to you? The customers, who gave it to you? The air in your lungs and the vision that your eyes see, who gave it to you? The sound you hear, who gave it to you? The money in your pocket, who gave it to you? When a person thinks about how much Hashem gives him, only a heretic would think that they have a permission to be stingy when it comes to Torah. But many times the stingy people will rationalize. They would rationalize them not giving. What are they going to say? No, listen, I only give once a year. I give during the high holidays. So, so you know, I don't give during the week. You know what the truth is? You don't give even during the high holidays. And even if you give, you don't give 10%. Anyone that actually does the calculations on how much they give more times than not, they'll find out that they're not even giving anywhere close to 10% of what they have. And needless to say, they're not giving it for the sake of Torah. They're giving it for the sake of friends, for the sake of family, for the sake of camaraderie, for the sake of popularity, for the sake of you know in social interests. But net, net to give something for the sake of building the Torah, very, very few people do it. But it's not necessarily always their fault. Sometimes a person simply does not have the merit and Hashem doesn't want them to give. They may give, but for the wrong causes. They have hundreds of millions of dollars. You ask him for a donation, to build a shul, to build a yeshiva, to help the poor. They'll give you $1,000, they'll give you $500. Somebody comes to them and says, listen, we want to build a new aquarium for Billy, the killer whale. And we're going to put a plaque of the donor on the aquarium. So that, that way, every time people come to the aquarium, while they're looking at the giant whale jump and eat and do all that stuff you know they could also see the name on a plaque of the guy that donated it okay how much does that cost oh it's nothing it's not that big a deal only talking about a million and a half dollars that's it you got it for a plaque you promised a plaque yeah yeah there you go what do i make check payable to wait wait so to publicize torah to publicize the only reason why the Jewish people exist till this day, despite all of their enemies throughout all of the generations, the Assyrians, the, the, the Babylonians, the Spaniards, the Romans, the Greeks, the Turks, the Nazis, endless amount of enemies we've had and the only reason why we survived is because of this very same Torah, not because of any other reason. And instead of investing there, 
that million and a half dollars where does he invest he invested into building an aquarium now if you ask him well, how come you don't invest in the Torah I told you what are you talking about I do the rabbi just came I just gave him a big check I just gave him a big check what what thousand dollars respectable yeah but to the whale you gave a million and a half dollars if you only treated your own people as good as you treat whales we'd be in business this is one of the things that Robert Fryman taught me years ago I don't know how the conversation got to it but he said if people treated Torah scholars as good as they treat wild animals we'd be in good we'd be in good shape look at what they feed these wild animals in the zoos in the safaris they give them steaks they give them big pieces of meat they give them everything they possibly need but the moment that a Torah scholar gets a hundred dollars in financial benefits from the government everyone calls them, ah you're living off of our taxes you're living off of us you waste of time but to the tiger to the elephant to anyone else that's in a zoo whether human or animal no problem to give them for the sake of it no why is that one of the reasons is because Hashem specifically says here he doesn't want everyone's donations he'll allow anybody to donate whatever they want to donate but for them to donate for the right cause they have to have the merit to do so and if I didn't see this with my own eyes it would be hard to believe and I know that many of you are not going to believe me and quite frankly I don't blame you why it's hard to understand the first time I heard it maybe 10 years ago I simply lost my mind I couldn't believe it this whole concept of merit having a merit to donate for the sake of real Torah and one of the things that I saw with my own eyes were people that would even show interest in investing in Torah having the ability to donate meaning money was never the issue but when push came to shove something always happened in the last minute and somehow it just didn't happen somehow it just didn't happen whether it be uh you know lawsuits or business failures lost phone number lost phone sickness all types of strange things now if somebody would have invested a thousand dollars into a tiny little business called Amazon a tiny little business called Google before it became what it is today that person will be one of the richest people in the world if the people that told us I'm telling you from first-hand experience that they want to invest in our organization when we first started out this is eight years ago one guy supposedly had 150 million dollars and he wanted to invest a substantial amount of money and of several other people along the way if they would have invested that means that they would have been partners in at least 22 books of Torah that we've published 
at least 120,000 people that we have fed literally millions of hours of Torah that has been taught countless people doing tshuva countless babies being saved from abortion countless marriages being saved from breaking and many other wonderful things but unfortunately some of these people were so poor in merits that Hashem did not even allow them to donate one dollar and if that wasn't sad enough the sadder ones are when people lose their merit where they initially have a merit they donate they start contributing sometimes even substantial amount of money five thousand ten thousand more and so on and they watch the shulim and they get invigorated and inspired sometimes they're coming from different religions they end up converting sometimes they're jews and they just become even more from than what they were sometimes they're new to judaism altogether they're jews that were born jewish but knew nothing about judaism so literally from all walks of life and they start they get familiar with our lectures with myself with rabbi Ephraim, now with rabbi Leib, with uh, rav shavit all of the different rabbis of bezat hashem but especially rabbi Ephraim and myself because we've been obviously the founders of the organization and these people would contribute and start becoming part of the organization partners of the organization if you will because you know each month you get a certain amount of money from them and then out of nowhere you see they disappear without any warning without any announcement without anything in the beginning when these things would happen it would be surprising now I don't have the type of time nor the interest to go chase people for money and to this day Baruch Hashem I have yet to have any conversation with anybody about their donations I always tell people that tell me they want to talk about donations I tell them that there's really not much to talk about we have a website we have a mailing address if you want to donate you can choose one of those options you don't need me to help you to donate unless you want a secretary to call you and help you process the donation I'm not going to be the one that convinces you to donate and the whole point of this talk is not to convince you to donate the whole point of this talk is to make sure that everybody understands that whatever they do with the money that Hashem gives them is only for themselves and I know that this sometimes and more times than not it hurts people's ego but this is clear verses in the Torah to think otherwise is problematic to say the least and I've seen this with my own eyes where somebody would literally be a donor even a key donor where they would contribute hundred thousand dollars a year or more and then one day disappear and you don't even know why in the beginning it was a surprise in the beginning it was a very big surprise that this person or two or three or five that were donating a substantial amount of money suddenly stopped because you know it wasn't financial problems because their financials improved drastically from the time that they started donating over the next couple of years the more they donated the more they did well in their businesses so it wasn't a financial problem it wasn't a marriage problem it wasn't a religious problem but something happened 
In the beginning, it would drive me crazy trying to figure out why. I mean, we helped this person. We did whatever we could. And eventually, we're referring to our Torah learning and experience to seeing this time and time again. Clarified the picture. And the picture became much sadder than I could imagine. We simply realize, oh, they lost the merit. It's not that they don't like you or they don't have the money. They lost the merit. God no longer wants the money that they make, that he gives them, to be used for something that is going to give them exponential reward for whatever they did. God decided, I don't want it. Go donate to some elephant. Go donate to some heretic. Go donate to some guy that pretends that he's homeless. Go donate to, I don't know, your sister's dog to save him from cancer. Go donate to a lot of other things. Don't donate to the Bezalot Hashem. Why? I don't want it. And that is very sad because you have no idea what just happened here. Why did this, what did this person do to lose the merit? They kill somebody. What do they do? The only thing I can tell you, it's a common denominator. I don't know what anybody did. I don't ask. Generally speaking, usually it's, we lose contact altogether when people stop donating because usually they're either embarrassed of it or they're uncomfortable or whatever it is. But I can tell you this. The one common denominator among all of the people that were contributors, especially the larger contributors, and simply stopped or deteriorated to such a point where it's almost non-existent in comparison, there's one common denominator. And as strange as it sounds, it's the only common denominator I could possibly find among all of them. They stopped watching the lectures. That's the common denominator. Meaning that apparently there was some type of spiritual growth that they were getting as a result of watching the shulim, as a result of watching the lectures. And at some point, the evil inclination tells a person, you've grown enough, try something else. And unfortunately, a person falls for the trap and stops watching the lectures. In the beginning, they go down from three lectures a week to one lecture a week. Then they go down to one lecture every few weeks and eventually gets to zero. And almost never do they realize that there is a loss of merit there. They lost an interest to be part of the organization. They lost an interest to using their money to build the very same place that helped build them. And what ends up happening is they go on in their life without even realizing what just happened. It's literally like somebody walking around with a terminal disease and not even realizing it. Now, 
one of the saddest things in the world is that even if you try to tell this to people it's almost impossible for them to accept this to be honest with you if it wasn't in the parasha and what Hashem gave me to say I wouldn't even say because it's not something that people could usually accept but I've seen this so many times and it's a very common thing where you see somebody lose their merit now one of the things that causes a person to lose their merit aside from what I just said of you know not elevating themselves in Torah not continuing to be committed to it is lack of gratitude when a person is ungrateful the Gemara says that person becomes one of the people that Hashem hates so whoever told you that Hashem loves everybody is simply not telling you the truth. Why? Because the Gemara lists multiple people that Hashem hates. One of them is a person that's ungrateful. If he's ungrateful to man, it's only a matter of time that he's going to be ungrateful to Hashem. And if he's ungrateful to Hashem, certainly he's going to be ungrateful to men. And many times people don't realize how gratitude is a necessity in life a necessity in relationships a necessity in business a necessity in every aspect of life and many times what ends up happening is that that lack of gratitude leads to stinginess because now that they don't necessarily think that anybody else helped them help them get that job help them find marriage help them a uh, uh, do whatever it is that they're doing now but in the beginning stages help them have a blessing in their life what ends up happening is that this lack of gratitude turns into stinginess where even when Hashem sends them different opportunities to earn their merit back all of a sudden it's like why why should I give my hard work to these people if they want it let them go work for it why do I have to give what I have to them now if it stopped there it would be bad enough but the reality is that that lack of gratitude doesn't only lead to stinginess stinginess leads to heresy because if that person ever has a moment of truth where he's questioning why am I stingy or somebody questions him why don't you want to give the immediate response that a person has is why should I give what I made why should I give what I have why should I give what is mine forgetting that you own nothing Kili Hashem says because everything in the world is mine mine is the money mine is the gold says God the Lord of legions so when a person says my money my houses my property that's why I don't want to give my stuff I worked for it that's a form of heresy a heresy that unfortunately leads to very very bad things not just in this world 
Now, the things that a person does in order to win different things in this world are literally have no limits. People are willing to do anything to get the job that they want, to get the woman they want, to get the man they want, to get the uh, house they want. Literally, people are willing to do everything. And they invest all of their energy into building a temporary world. When you tell them that you have an opportunity to take this temporary possession and make it a permanent fixture in your life, in this world and the next, where in this world, you will have an opportunity to have a Shem in your heart at all times. Why? Because every time you invest into the Torah, automatically that makes you more connected to Torah, more inclined to learn Torah, more invested into Torah, and have more divine assistance when it comes to learning it, following it, doing anything that's necessary. Because you're investing into this place and you're making a Shem, and his Torah, a permanent fixture in your heart, a permanent fixture in your life. But even more so, all of that money, instead of going to buy more properties and more insurance policies and more uh, Bitcoin and more stocks and more everything else, that eventually is going to be given to somebody else. And many times it's not the, somebody else that you thought it's going to be given to. Usually that somebody else is someone that you would not give it to. Many times people die with the most amount of possessions that they ever had meaning that they spent their entire lives working for somebody else working for somebody else to benefit from all of their hard work and many times that somebody else doesn't even care for them so instead of leaving their money towards torah they have plans to give it to this son and that daughter and this campaign and that campaign And instead of making what the sages say is the proper step, which is to give during their life, not to wait until they're they're dead and hope that their kids will give on their behalf. What ends up happening is that people get to a point where they lose all merits and all rights to give for the sake of Torah. Because if they would ever have the merit to give for the Torah, that means that that money becomes part of eternity. There was a extraordinary tzaddik, one of the giants of the generation, just a few hundred years ago. Rabbi Levi Tzchak Berdichov was the name. And there was a time when they needed to raise some money to free a Jewish prisoner. It's a very big mitzvah to free Jewish prisoners when they're in the prison of the uh, Gentiles. And of course, the decree was heavy, the amount of money was extraordinary, and they needed to raise 30,000 rubles, a huge sum of money. So they came to Rabbi Levi Tzachmi Berdichov, and they said, listen, Kvodarav, you're the biggest rabbi of the generation, we need your help to raise this money. And Rabbi Levi Tzachmi Berdichov says to them, I'll come with you under the condition that you're not going to tell me what to do if I want to go somewhere and ask someone or say something you're gonna let me do what I want to do and not control my speech and where I go they said no problem for the love you come with us wherever you want to go and they started going 
different places, collecting here, collecting there, but not much luck. As they're walking, there's a huge collection of a field full of beautiful trees. There's an entrance, a road, but they walk past it. And Rabbi Levi Yitzchak says, why are you skipping it? Why don't we go here? There's a big house, a mansion down the road. So the uh, people say to him, no, Kvodarav, this is not a place that anybody goes to anymore. He says, why not? It's not, not Jewish people? Because no, no, it's actually a Jew. But it's a Jew that's extraordinarily wealthy. Wealthier than Korach. But he is the stingiest man alive. But he's not just stingy. Some people are stingy, but they still give a little bit. No, this one is so stingy that his pleasure is to not give more than a penny and make fun in, 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 in a, of the people asking for him. So Rabbi Dichov says, I want to go here. So yeah, but for that, wasting our time. We got to... Re- you said we had a deal. I'll go anywhere I want. Okay, you want to go there, Rabbi? Fine. You go. He goes, you guys don't have to come with me if you don't want, but I'm going. We're coming, we're coming. So they walk down this, you know, huge road, beautiful trees, beautiful flowers. I mean, this is a little heaven. You know, one of these huge plots of land, you know, all types of a, uh, beautiful things on it. Eventually, they get to the mansion. They knock on the door. The butler answers. He has a smile on his face, immediately saying, you, you sure you're in the right house? Yeah, yes, yes, we want to see the owner of the house. He says, fine, suit yourself, I'll call him. As soon as the owner of the house sees them, he smiles, oh, welcome, come, come, sit down, come over here, please, come in. And Rabbi Berdichov says to him, yes, we uh, have a uh, situation, there's a Jewish prisoner under the uh, prison of the, of the Gentiles, and we need to do everything possible to free him, and uh, we need to raise 30,000 rubles. And we're hoping that uh, Kvodo would help us. And the guy says to him, you're new here. You, 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 do you ever hear about me, who I am? He says, no, I'm just here to help. I figured that you may want to help. Do mitzvah. And this guy sees that the Rav is so pure and naive. He says, okay, fine. He goes, he comes back a moment later. He says, I got something for you. Oh, yeah? Sure. What do you have? And he takes out, you know, the equivalent of a penny, a tiny little coin, something that even a paper towel you can't get with it. Here you go. Shiny penny for you. Rabbi Berdichov opens his hand. He puts it in his hand. And all of a sudden, the rabbi starts blessing this guy. Yishem. He says the name of Hashem and blesses this person. Mishi Barach, Avotenu Aktoshim, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. May he bless this person with good health, with success in his business, 
happy marriage, successful kids, ta, 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 and he goes on and on and on and on, and he's dead, he's happy about it, and the guy, he's confused. Usually when he gives the penny to people, they throw it at his face, they curse him out, he has a laugh, and uh, you know, the entertainment's over. He's never seen anything like this. Needless to say, a rabbi is dancing around while he's giving him blessings. But not just a simple blessing, he's going on and on and on. And even the Hasidim that came with the rabbi, they're confused. Maybe the rabbi doesn't know what he just got. Maybe the rabbi is confused. Maybe he thought he gave him a gold coin instead of a penny. And they're not even sure, but they don't dare say a single word. All they're saying is watching the rabbi give this guy blessings as if he just found Mount Sinai. And after some time, he completes the blessing. And the guy says to the rabbi, he goes, Wow, you sure like that coin, huh, rabbi? Oh, yeah, we really appreciate it, Bo Hashem. You want another one? Ah, you would do that? Sure, I'll do it. And the guy goes back to the room. He comes back with a coin in his hand. He goes, here you go. Rabbi Berdichov opens his hand, accepts the coin, and all of a sudden, the blessings begin again. But now it's completely new blessings. It's not the same blessings. New blessings altogether. And he blesses the guy who you have success in your marriage, in your health, in your this, and your that. Do, 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 do. Every blessing under the sun that the guy has ever heard has been nothing in comparison to the blessing that he's getting from the Rav Mibirdichov. And he simply cannot believe what's going on over here. The Hasidim are watching. They have no idea what's going on over here. And the rabbi is blessing this stingy rich man. And after he finishes, he says, Rabbi, I love your blessings. I mean, if I give you a ruble, would you give me more blessings? I mean, ruble is a lot more than just what I gave you. Rabbi says, let's try guy goes gets a ruble gives it to the rabbi and the rabbi begins a set of blessings and he gives him blessings blessings the world has never heard before things unlike anything else the guy smiles he is getting the pleasure of all pleasures here he's like this is what you get for a ruble rabbi what if i give you a hundred rubles do I get another blessing? Rabbi says, we can try. The guy goes, gets a hundred rubles. And the rabbi now starts bringing blessings from the Kabbalah, from the Zohar. And he's blessing him. And the guy just simply couldn't believe it. He's so happy. He's in a different world. He's never heard, he's heard curses of all kinds. In every language possible. Blessings like this, no one's ever heard. After the rabbi completes this and he says, hold on a second. What are you guys actually looking for? What are you doing here? He said, we're here to collect money to free a prisoner. He says, what do you need to free the prisoner? 30,000 rubles. Okay, I'll do that. He goes back into the room, comes back with 30,000 rubles. Here you go. The rabbi, of course, gives him blessings many many more blessings and then they all leave 
Now, of course, there was no time to waste. They immediately went and used the money to go free this prisoner. And shortly later, they found out that this cheap, stingy, rich man became the most generous person in the community. Suddenly, he wanted to donate to the yeshiva. He wants to donate to the synagogue. He wants to donate to the homeless shelter. He wants to donate to free the prison. He wants to donate to everything. And he became the biggest gvir in the community. And that's when the Hasidim came to the Rabbi Mirdichov and said, what did you do to him? What is it? The Kabbalah? What did you do to him? How did you do it? When we were there, we didn't see anything. So can you please explain to us? How did you do that? We've been going to him for 20 years. He never donated even the penny. How did you get him to do all this? Rami Berdichov says, I knew who he was. Many of the poor people that came collecting came to me complaining about him and how he insults them, he embarrasses them, and he gives them nothing, not even a cup of water. And as soon as I saw that penny, the evil inclination told me, throw this penny at his face. What, is he joking? But then I looked at the penny and I saw the Satan is inside that penny. Meaning this guy, his entire evil inclination is inside his money. He's so stingy that even the penny didn't have the merit to go to the right place. That's why people kept throwing it at him. So I figured, let me take this penny from him. And all of a sudden, he wanted to give me another penny. And I saw the next penny, and I saw that there's still some evil inclination in that penny. Obviously, this is things that normal people don't see, but the Rabbi Baldichov saw. I saw that there's still some evil inclination in there. So I said, yeah, give me that one too. And then he gave me a ruble. And after that, I saw it's very little left of this evil inclination of this Satan. I took that one too. And then he gave us a hundred. And that was the first time I saw nothing on it. We succeeded in eliminating his evil inclination of stinginess. From now on, he will be a big donor for the sake of Torah. Now, of course, the greatness of the Rami Berdichov doesn't need to be clarified any further. But the truth be told, there's also a greatness to that stingy donor. A greatness that may not be appreciated at first look. At first look, you want to punch the guy in the face. At first look, you think, why doesn't this guy donate before? As people struggling, you have so much. How many beds can you sleep in? How many houses can you live in? How much food can you eat? You have extra give. But the reality is that some people have lost their merits where they don't have the ability to give. And that person, although he didn't have the right intentions, at the very least, he tried. He gave a penny. And when he heard a blessing, he didn't discount it. 
He appreciated for what it was and gave more. Not realizing the value of that penny, that first penny opened up a merit that he didn't have in years. A merit to give another penny. The second penny gave a merit to give even more. And the reality is that when a person does one mitzvah, the Mishnah in Masechet Avot says the reward for one mitzvah is another mitzvah. Why is the reward for a mitzvah another mitzvah? Why don't you just give me a penthouse? Why don't you just give me a plane? Why don't you just give me a bunch of cash? Why is the reward for a mitzvah another mitzvah? Because the truth is, explains the Rambam, there is nothing in this entire world even if you calculate from the beginning of the world and all the way until the end, that is as precious as a single mitzvah. Nothing in this world, meaning all of the wealth that ever existed in this world, all of the pleasure, all of the good that ever existed in this world is not enough to reward a person for a single mitzvah that they did. And because of that, the real reward that a person gets for a mitzvah is an opportunity to do another mitzvah. Now sometimes that opportunity will come with more tools, more money, car, a job, a wife, kids, whatever it is. But it's not the kid or the wife or the car or the job that is the reward. It's the mitzvah opportunity that comes with them. Because the real reward is much greater than this world. And the only thing that's greater than the reward that a person will get from a mitzvah is the reward that he will get for causing somebody else to do a mitzvah. Gadola me'aseh minaoseh. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, greater is the reward of a person that causes another to do a mitzvah than even the reward that he will get for the mitzvah that he does for himself. Meaning that you will get an endless reward for your donation, for your good deeds. But guess what? There's an endless reward times infinity that you will get for causing somebody else to do. Now for those people that say, oh, you know what? So let me just focus on causing other people to do it. And I don't have to do anything myself. No, no, no. In order to have success in causing other people to do a mitzvah, you have to have the merit. And you can't have the merit if you don't do the mitzvah yourself. So from there we see Rabotai Karim Parashat Truma, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, Take from me a portion. Take from what I've given you a portion and invest it into building a sanctuary for me in your heart. Something you can very well do today. Now if you find yourself having a tough time building that sanctuary that's full of Torah in your heart, you find yourself more inclined to donate towards dogs, donate towards heresy, donate towards lies, donate towards reform, liberalism, and all types of LGBT type of interests, then you should cry for mercy from above to at least give you the merit like that guy that gave a penny. With that being said, I'm going to take a quick drink and you guys can start asking some questions. Hi Rabbi, is it okay to give to Temple Institute? 
two things. One, uh, I don't recommend other organizations when I don't know uh, what they do as far as uh, behind the scenes, not just uh, what they show on their website. So I don't recommend anybody unless I know the institution uh, uh, from the inside out. If I know that the people are not stealing, I know that the people are uh, have integrity. They follow the Torah. They follow Gedolei Israel. They follow everything and not just, you know, have a nice website and good videos. So I cannot ever recommend any institution that I don't know that about. Uh, so that's why the only in, uh, organization that I recommend is the one that I run, which is Bezat Hashem. Now, the second thing I can tell you about, uh, you know, anyone that is out there telling people we're going to start a new Sanhedrin, we're going to build the Bet HaMikdash, uh, we're going to start doing things without getting permission from Gdolei Israel uh, to do so, is not someone that I would uh, uh, invest into, simply because that is a problematic mentality. Uh, they may not be desecrating Shabbat, but they're also not following uh, what the Masoret is. So again, I don't know what everybody does and how they do it. What I do know is that several Chachamim have asked us about this issue and have uh, uh, considered uh, some strong steps against different institutions out there that are in essence portraying as if they are uh, rebuilding the Bet HaMikdash now without the Mashiach being here. So I don't see that as a, uh, uh, as, a as a good idea. Last but not least, there is nothing greater, there's nothing greater in the world than investing into helping people do tshuva. It's greater than investing into anything else. It's greater than investing in the Bet HaMikdash itself. Because the only thing that a person can do for their creator is to bring one of their other, bring one of Hashem's other kids closer to him. That's the only thing that a person can do. Now Hashem doesn't need you to do it, but in essence, the money that a person has, the uh, children, the uh, buildings, all of these other things, uh, all of it belongs to Hashem. Now, when you bring one of Hashem's children that Hashem has been waiting for for the last 3,000 years to come back to Him, you help them do tshuva, uh, there's simply nothing greater than that. And there's literally endless sources that support that. Uh, there's no one that's going to contradict it. So if you're going to compare helping people do tshuva, investing into Kiruv, uh, against anything else out there, you'll see that it does not compare. Uh, so much so that the Chovot Alevavot writes uh, nearly a thousand years ago that even if somebody has good deeds and great Torah knowledge like Moshe Rabbeinu, they're nothing in comparison to the uh, uh, merit that a person that helps other people do tshuva is. Meaning, this is not just an opinion of some Kiruv Rabbi from 2023. This is part of our Masoet. And it all stems from what I just said before, which is the teachings of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that says, greater is the person that causes other people to, uh, uh, to do a mitzvah than even the mitzvah that he does himself. So even though by donating to different uh, uh, Jewish organizations, you're certainly causing other people to do mitzvahs, but then you have to calculate what is the greatest mitzvah that someone can do. Now, even if you say the great mitzvah is to, let's say, keep this or keep that or, uh, or buy this or buy that, there are, every mitzvah is great. But to help somebody do tshuva, that means that you are a part of every single mitzvah that they, their children, and all of their descendants will ever do in history. So there's simply nothing greater than that. So if you compare that to anything else, uh, you're, you're simply going to realize that there's really nothing greater to invest in. 
uh, and uh, everything pales in comparison. Uh, and it's not a uh, individual opinion; it's a reality. You go to any gadol batura, you go to any real book that discusses uh, the uh, this, you'll see that there's simply nothing that compares to it. Now, of course, we still have a need for homeless, you know, homeless shelters and and uh, places that help. Uh, uh, you know, children and, and orphans and so on. There's still a need for it, and certainly there's people that donate for those things. But uh, if a person looks at things from a spiritual investment purpose, there's simply nothing in comparison to it. But I know that sometimes, most times, people don't look at their donations as investments. They look at their donations as uh, some type of uh, uh, something close to their heart. Whatever is a uh, either socially acceptable socially uh, 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 welcomed, uh, you know, something that they are connect to in some form or another, benefit from some form or another. And uh, if they were an orphan, they'll want to donate to orphanages. If they were a divorcee, they'll want to donate to divorce organizations. You know, people donate to things that they can relate to, things that they could um, uh, connect to. And uh, that's nice, but it's not necessarily the right way to do things. Why? Because you just like if you're going to be investing into a, uh, you know, into properties, or you're going to be investing into stocks or any other form of investment. If you're a good investor, and I spent nearly two decades being an investor on Wall Street, I can tell you, if you're a good investor, the first thing that you're going to look at is what can make me the most. What can make me the most? What is the best risk reward? Meaning everything has some form of risk, but everything also has. If it's an investment, some form of reward, if it's a real investment. So what has the best risk versus reward odds? Uh, you know, and uh, if a person looks, one thing can give you, uh, you know, uh, you invest 100, you can make uh, 10. So at the end of the year, you'll have 110. Okay, 10%, thank you. Another one can make you potentially 15%. Another one can make you 17%. Another one can make you 20%. Okay, great. And then they come to you and say, oh, listen, this one can make you... 40 million percent excuse me what do you mean 40 million percent yeah you can make 40 million percent because this is a company that's called amazon you could buy it for a penny and uh it may end up being the greatest thing that uh the world has seen in the last 20 years and go from books to selling everything the only they don't sell is people and i think that's coming soon so you could do that now if the person is normal say okay hold on a second what's the risk but even if there is a risk, like how, how, how much could I, like there's such a huge potential. So uh, in comparison to the others, if you're a good investor, usually you're going to pick the latter. Either way, I know that I could talk until I'm blue in the face like the screen behind me. And people are still going to follow their emotions more than they're going to follow their brain. That's just a reality. But we still give the information because there are some people that uh, want the, uh, uh, the right information and they'll decide accordingly. But either way, it's because it has to do with the parasha. Uh, my secular cousin moved into a new home and had a baby girl. I'm trying to make a her. Therefore, what gift do you suggest that I give her? Uh, the gift that you give her is something relevant to Torah. If she is a reader, then I would recommend that you get her a good book, Rav Nisim Yagen book, uh, a, uh, you know, a uh, Rav Mizrahi book. If she reads Hebrew, she could also get my book. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's certainly a, a book, or she can get some other books that we recommend in the past uh, about different sages. If she doesn't read books yet or doesn't read Torah-related books and things like that, 
then I would recommend you get us some type of uh, video. So, you know, either get a, the Q-Roof package that we have that uh, has all types of CDs and uh, USBs with different things she can watch and listen to, or you could uh, uh, order the USB set for her, or you could uh, give her some type of uh, Torah-related product uh, that is going to teach a Torah, not just like Shabbat candle uh, or, or, or Shabbat towels, like that type of stuff is not going to really help her life. It's just more furniture. You want to give her something that could potentially save her eternity. Uh, so something that's going to teach a Torah. And like I said, Torah books, CDs, USBs, that's the type of stuff that I would give her. Because that's something that could potentially save her. Now, it may not work right away, but I can tell you that when you invest into the Torah, it's always like planting seeds. I actually had a guy that uh, I sent him a Kiruv package for free as a gift uh, so speaking to him, seeing that he has some interest and so on, uh, maybe three years ago, something like that, three years ago, and uh, I sent him a cube package, you know, full of books, CDs, uh, interesting stuff. Now, each cube package costs almost $300, so it's not something you can do every day with everybody, but, you know, once in a while, if I see a serious opportunity... To, to help somebody uh, do tshuva, and I know that there's no chance in the world they're going to buy it on their own, but there is a chance that they may actually look into it if they get it as a gift. Sometimes I take a chance. And, now, anyway, I sent this guy the information. He accepted it, was very, uh, uh, you know, happy about it, and that's it. I lost touch with him. I haven't, you know, I didn't hear from him for a while. About uh, maybe three, four months ago, Three, four months ago, I hear from him again. Hey, Rabbi, I just want to let you know. Really appreciate everything you do. I've been watching your lectures, da da da. And I see my phone. Oh, wow, this guy, I haven't heard from him in three years, two and a half years. And he starts asking some questions and so on. And then I ask him, like, okay, so uh, how long have you been doing tshuva? And he says, when I started looking into the package six months ago. Meaning the package that I sent him three years ago sat there collecting dust for two years plus. Did nothing. I spent money, efforts. I even made the package myself. Those packages are not easy to make. They take a lot of time. Just the shipping alone is like $30, $40. You know, so you put a lot of effort into this thing. Each one of these packages, to me, I look at them, oh, this is another seed. This is another seed. It's another investment. There's another opportunity. Another this. And you'd never believe it. And I told people, listen, in early on, I, I wish I had a whole team of people making these key packages to send it to different people. I think there's a lot of potential, but it's you need a huge amount of money for it. And uh, But either way, it's uh, the amount of uh, people that have done tshuva from those packages is unbelievable. And sometimes it doesn't work right away. But this guy, he kept it in the back burner for two years. Eventually, he had enough merit to open it he looked at some of the books and little by little became more religious. But Hashem, now in the last uh, six months or so, uh, he uh, started keeping Shabbat, started, keep, started learning Torah every day. He moved to uh, a religious neighborhood. So, Hashem, Hashem will find a Shiduch soon. So, wonderful things happening. And sometimes it takes a while for them to grow. But uh, that's the way you got to look at it. Is that as long as you give a person you care about some form of real Torah that they can learn from, 
not just enjoy the beauty of it or the way it looks but something they can learn from a book a cd a usb something that like that you can be sure that that seed has a lot more value than anything else you can buy them because that seed could literally be something that saves them eternity and i'll tell you a story there was once rabbi again alava shalom rabbi nisim again he uh this was his his uh his people he gets a letter one of these letters that's like you know megillat still it's a really really long letter and you know i don't know why people think that for whatever reason they think that you know the rabbis never have anything to do and we can just read these really really long letters god bless people i mean i appreciate the letters and everything but many times you have these 5 10 20 page letters and emails and you simply don't have the ability to read all of it at best maybe you'll skim through part of it at best even if you look at it sometimes it's so long it's so scary you don't look at it at all uh not because you don't care it's just it just takes too much time it's 40 minutes just to read something it's a book but anyway one time Rav, uh, Rav again gets a letter a long letter he says usually I don't read these letters but I delved into the first few words and you know it got me to read more and more and more and before I know it I read the whole thing and he says it was one of the most extraordinary stories I was ever a part of and it comes from a woman that says I saved her life I saved her marriage but I'm never gonna believe how she said her and her husband have been fighting for a very long time what's the fight about her husband became more religious and uh she has no interest in becoming religious no interest and uh as he's becoming more and more religious she is becoming more and more upset that he is becoming religious and it gets to a point where she says listen if you're you're gonna peak your religion or me and the guy says listen I, I love you I don't want you to leave but uh, I'm not gonna become not religious I'm not gonna go to the beach with you anymore I'm not gonna violate Shabbat I'm not doing it. why don't you listen why don't you this she was never willing to listen to anything now around that time I love you again had a uh, trip to uh to Europe I believe it was Europe and uh you know in those days they had tapes cassette tapes instead of the CDs and USBs that cassette tapes and he would have people usually buy a whole collection of tapes to put them in uh, you know in the local shul and you could just take the uh, tapes you'd have let's uh, 300 tapes and he wanted to borrow one would borrow it and listen to it and then put it back like a library so he brought this collection and uh he gave it to the uh place and the place for whatever reason or another didn't want it or the guy couldn't accept it so it, it was uh didn't know what to do with it one day a couple of the guys that had it said listen we're, we're leaving town we're gonna be gone for a while we're gonna do with these tapes I go, I don't know. Well, Ravi again told us we have to get make sure we can go somewhere. What are we gonna do with them? All of a sudden they see somebody else that they know. They say, hey, listen, can you do us a favor? Can you take care of these tapes and you know listen to them, maybe share them with some people? And the guy said, sure, why not? Look like a newly religious guy. Interested. He takes the tapes. And he starts listening to these tapes and he becomes more and more religious. And uh, but he doesn't dare bring these tapes to the house. Why? 
His wife can't stand him. It's the same wife that we're talking about. His wife can't stand him becoming religious. And if he brings 300 tapes of Torah to the house, she'll probably hang him at night. So every day, he, you know, he sneaks in another tape, listens to it, finishes, gets to another one. And one day, his wife tells him, listen, I'm leaving you. I already talked to the lawyer, already this, already that. We're done. We just have to show up to the court on uh, this uh, day, this time. Poor guy has nothing to do. Said, what are you going to do? He says, or she says, the night before the court appearance that finalizes everything and officially ends this marriage, the, uh, the husband is out working or something. He was gone and she was really upset that he chose God over her and she you know, starts, uh, you know, reminiscing with herself. Put, she put on her wedding dress and she's crying herself to sleep and she looks at the uh, sky and she says, how come I don't feel it? How come I don't feel this thing that he does? I don't feel God. I don't feel it. And she says, God, if you're real, please show me. And she fell asleep. The next morning, she goes into the car, and she, before the appointment is later on that day, it's four o'clock or something like that. She goes into the car and she automatically the car plays the tape that's already in there and she starts listening to what's on the tape what's on the tape of Nisimi again telling people about reward and punishment genom chilu shabbat what happens don't steal this that she forgets where she's even going she continues to listen to the whole tape she finishes it she gets home the husband is there so okay, we have we have to go to the appointment. She goes, no, no, uh, I'm gonna cancel it. Husband like, okay. When do you want to do it? I don't know. But do you have another tape? And he says, tape for what? The tape, the tape that you have in the car. Do you have another one? The guy almost had a heart attack from happiness, but he didn't want to show it there. He's like, uh, yeah, I kind of have some. Yeah, yeah, I, I can get you another one. Sure. All right, can you get one quickly? I I, re- I need one. I need one. The guy runs to the car, shows up with a tape. Oh, thanks. Okay. She goes back in the car. She's listening to another tape. She's driving aimlessly. No reason to drive. She wants to hear the tape. She hears another tape. She finishes it. She comes back home. It's only an hour. Comes back home. You have another tape? She's like, yeah, I can get you another tape. She gives him another tape. Another tape. Another tape. And she's crying herself, but this time from happiness. And she tells her husband, finally, I want to be religious. I want to cover my hair. I want to do everything. And he says to her, how? And she tells him what she said. She said, 
I didn't feel what you feel. I didn't know what you know. I didn't want to hear it. You told me you believe in this thing in the air that's God, this creator. I didn't feel it. I didn't grow up that way. And last night, I looked at the sky and I said, if you're real God, please show me. And today, he showed me. Today he showed me. I went into the car and for the first time in my life, I heard Torah. And I heard God was speaking to me through that Torah. Because I don't know where you got those tapes. What I do know is that had it been any other day, it wouldn't have worked. Today, I knew God was talking to me. And Ravi again says this story. I heard this from him several times. He says, I'm reading this letter and I'm crying. Crying. Why? Who would have known this set of tapes that looked like it was like supposed to go to one place, they backed out on it for some unknown reason. Then it's like roaming around. The guys that were responsible for it forgot about the fact that they have the tapes. They end up giving it to some random Jew that just started doing tshuva, who's in the process of a divorce, and that guy saves an entire generation of Jews with that set of tapes. So you see, Rabotai, when you invest into Torah that can help people, whether it's a tape or a CD or a USB or a book, that can help people get closer to Hashem, you're not just helping that person become entertained. You're not helping that person get closer to God. You're literally giving that person to save an entire generation of Jewish people. And that's why there's nothing greater than that. I, my neighbor, has a special needs child. Is he supposed, supposed to put on tefillin? Uh, that depends. That depends on how much of a special needs person he is. If he's all there uh, mentally, he just has, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, difficulty with uh, operating his body and so on. Uh, you know, but he still has all of his limbs and he's aware of who God is then uh, somebody should put on the tefillin on his arm. Even if he's missing one arm, he still puts in on the other arm. Uh, in fact, the Alachai, the Yalkut Yosef, talks about how if, let's say, somebody's missing uh, their hand up to the elbow, uh, then they still put on tefillin on that arm. Uh, but if, they, if they're missing beyond that, then they put it on the other arm. Uh, some say you should still put it on that nub, but uh, then, but don't make a blessing. Make a you know, but put it on the other arm and make a blessing when you put on the tefillin on the head. The point being is, is that there are different forms of disabilities. Uh, if the person is you know uh, has a uh, a level of autism or other types of uh, uh, mental disorders, that is simply the person is not with us. He's just completely unaware of reality he has no concept of right and wrong and things of that nature then no he's absolved from the mitzvot he's not judged for them uh that neshama came to the world to uh to suffer in that body for a certain period of time until it goes to uh to to heaven usually those neshamot 
are the neshamot of righteous people that need to suffer for a certain amount of time in a physical body. Uh, and Hashem uh, uh, puts them in those bodies specifically to protect them from sin. Uh, to protect them from sinning, because if they have a normal body, they can potentially sin and lose the heaven that they were supposed to get. Uh, but anyway, he puts them in those bodies, so the usually people that are completely uh, you know, uh, disconnected from the world, unable to communicate, unable to, to function altogether, many times those can be the, the neshamot, the very righteous people. Either way, uh, if the person is in that, ca- in that fashion, then they're absolved from the mitzvah. There's nothing that they can do. They, they have no concept of what uh, anything is. On the other hand, if they are still communicating, aware, but they have some uh, uh, you know, uh, problems or inabilities in regards to their body, then they can still fulfill mitzvot, uh, and somebody obviously needs to help them. Uh, so it all depends. depends on the, uh, on the person. Uh, what is Pidyon Nefesh? Uh, Pidyon Nefesh is one of the things the, the uh, Kabbalists, uh, you know, people do it, people that are involved in Kabbalah do it. Uh, if there is uh, a person has, uh, you know, just a really tough time, uh, let's just say, uh, somebody's having a lot of bad things happen to them, uh, either there's sickness, uh, you know, they have a uh, financial issues, they have... Uh, legal issues they have uh you know problems with uh health issues you know things like that they can't have children then sometimes they will go to somebody that can do a pidyon nefesh for them uh and uh what that is is that they take uh 180 coins and they do this specific type of prayer for for the sake of that person it takes a long time uh to do it and that's why not everybody does it uh and uh and usually the people that do it are uh you know they charge for it because it's it's not uh it, it costs a lot of time so even if a person is righteous uh they can't do that stuff for people every day we literally waste their entire life uh and also arranging 180 coins that in itself is a process and you have to donate these coins to specific poor people and so on and uh, you know so it's it's a whole process uh, I've done it. Uh, I've had uh, a couple of people that have helped connect him to somebody that uh, you know is a friend of mine, is a you know, mekubal uh, friend, you know, whatever somebody <laughs> I know that's a mekubal that does it. Uh, but uh, many times people have asked me about it, and uh, I tell them right up front. I don't even ask him because I know that you know most people are not willing to pay for stuff like this. They think that it's like the rabbis are supposed to like work for free, like it's some type of charitable cause. Uh, they don't realize how much this stuff involves. So uh, many times I don't even t- tell them about it because uh, I tell the people, listen, if you do this, it's going to cost you, you know, uh, 500 to $1,000, maybe more even. So if the person said, oh, no, no, I think I have something else. Okay, oh, great. Thank you very much. I don't have to waste my time making calls, making arrangements, and then you just simply wasting his time. I tell you, it costs money. It's a, if you want to do it, great. Uh, if you don't want to do it, please don't, don't waste anybody's time. Uh, but as far as does it work, it can work. Uh, it can work. It's not something that's guaranteed. Nothing is guaranteed because, again, sometimes it's not the pidyon nefesh that would help, but rather tshuva that would help. If the person is doing everything possible to fix themselves, 
uh, and they do a pidyon nefesh, then it's good. But if the person is doing a pidyon nefesh, but he's still wasting seed, he's still going out with different girls, he's still uh, you know stealing in his business, he's still dishonest, he's still doing all types of sins. Pidyon nefesh is not going to do anything to him. Pidyon nefesh is not going to do anything to him. So it's it's pidyon nefesh is something that you do for people that, uh, at the very least, are uh, doing something for themselves, unless. You know, there, uh, you know, there's like literal life on the line, and then you just pretty much just try anything anyway. But again, there's no guarantee that it'll work. It can work. It certainly has worked, uh, but it's not. It's not like something that's guaranteed by no stretch of the imagination. And if I can tell you from experience, if somebody tells you, "Listen, yeah, no problem. We'll just do the pidyon nefesh for you. Give me fifty bucks, hundred bucks," you can be sure they're not doing it. Not because. It's a, anything else other than the fact that it just takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time to do it. It's not, uh, it's not five minutes. So anyone that does not value their time, uh, you know, it's, 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 I wouldn't want to do a pidyon nefesh for me. And, you know, the Torah, people that do it usually are serious Torah scholars, people that value every second. So they're not going to do it, uh, you know, for, for, for nothing. Now, of course, there are some tzaddikim, that will randomly do it for specific causes, for specific people, and so on, but it's uh, usually those people don't deal with the general public. Uh, during the times of the uh, Bet HaMikdash, is, what? During the times of the Bet HaMikdash, is every male or family responsible to bring appropriate offerings on Shabbat and Rosh Chodesh, or does the temple just use their animals? No, everybody has to bring their own. Everybody has to bring their own animals, or they buy it at the Bet Hamikdash. There was a—if you ever look at uh, different uh, uh, teachings about the Bet Hamikdash, you'll see that the Bet Hamikdash had a—it was like a city of its own. The Bet Hamikdash wasn't like a, just a building; it was like a city of its own. There was a haircuts. There was a uh, fruits and vegetable area. There was a place for uh, sheep. There was a place that made uh, leather. There was uh, pools. <laughs> there was a lot of interesting things in the Bet Hamikdash, uh, and uh, certainly they had a section where people would buy the uh, korbanot there, uh, because it wasn't possible for them to uh, to bring the uh, different animals from wherever they were. They came from far away, or they simply didn't have the ability to bring it, so they would buy it over there. I saw my job people that talk about near-death experience. However, these people report that they see heaven. How come this, how can this be true if most of them are idol worshippers? Is this some trap of the Satan when, uh, when these people experience these episodes? Okay, so when a person is a, uh, um, a person makes certain sins, the Mishnah in Masechet Avot says that person creates different mazikim. Mazikim, you can, I guess, translate it to demons. It's not the perfect translation, but it's a translation. Mazikim are demons. When a person does good deeds, according to the Torah, they create angels. Angels that help them. Those angels, the good ones, give them strength to encourage them to do more good deeds and also protect them uh, from whatever demons they already have. And needless to say, they uh, try to, uh, try to um, entice them 
to uh, not make sense and to do more mitzvot. The demons do the exact opposite. When a person does sins and he now acquired demons, then those demons are going to make that person more inclined to make more sins and thereby make more demons. And the more sins a person makes, the more they're surrounded by literally millions of demons, especially if they waste seed and they're immodest and immoral, then each act could literally be making not just one demon, but millions. Anyway, the those demons are not just there sitting, you know, playing cards and just waiting for the guy to decide what he wants to do with his life. They have certain rights. They have certain uh, benefits, if you will. And part of their benefits is to mess with the person, is to, is to mess with them, is to torture them. And many times they torture people in, uh, during their sleep. They come to them in the form of nightmares or they come to them in form of false images. They'll come to them as a form of, uh, let's say, uh, some uh, grandparent telling them that, oh, such and such is going to happen. But in reality, nothing happens. It's not their grandparent. It's some demon messing with them because he knows it's going to wreck this guy's day. He's going to cry for three weeks because he saw his long lost grandfather. Or it's going to come to them in something that's going to make them nervous because it's going to tell them that their uh, loved one is going to die in three days. So it's going to simply mess with them. Or it's going to come to them in night terrors. Anyone that doesn't know what night terrors are, you're very lucky that you don't know what it is. Let's just say that. Uh, and they also come to them in different visions. Uh, different visions that uh, could be a near-death experience vision. That a person will see something that uh, would seem to be like heaven, would even seem to be like some false god. They could see somebody that... Uh, could literally say to them, he is uh, Buddha, or he's Jesus, or he's Bil'am, or he's Paro, he's whoever they want him to be. Um, now, why does Hashem allow this? It's not about him allowing it. There's a cause, there's an effect. You did certain things, therefore you created the result. When a person is worshipping an idol, uh, whether it's the idol from Christianity and Catholicism, or the idol from uh, uh, all types of uh, religions in India, or uh, you know, in uh, different parts of Asia, Buddhism, and so on, that person is creating a you know different types of demons, and those demons, uh, some of them have a lot of strength, some of them are very very powerful, uh, and uh, they can do a lot of uh, a lot of things to uh, cause the people to stay in a direction that they want them to stay. Meaning that uh, they'll mess with the guy, they'll give him certain dreams, certain visions, certain uh, beliefs. In order for him to stay on this sinful path, uh, one of the common things uh, now uh, is is people becoming Satanists. A lot of people are becoming Satanists, and uh, it, you would, it, I wouldn't be surprised if he told me, "Listen, I know a Satanist, and he says he speaks to things and he sees things." That's not a surprising thing. To to get a demon to show up, you can do it in five minutes if you want, but to get him to leave, that's a different story. So, so that's the, the, that's the thing. To, to get these powers of impurity uh, to come, literally you can do it in five seconds. It's not, it's not a problem. To get them to leave, that may take you a lifetime. That may take you a lifetime. So the Satanists use seed and blood uh, typically to, uh, to form relationships with these different types of creatures. Like I said, call it demons as a general name, but there's different aspects of it. And some of them uh, have uh, very extraordinary powers, uh, like uh, Rav Yosef Ben Porat uh, recently uh, uh, 
uh, brought out in the lecture. There's also some books uh, written about it in German and uh, other languages from uh, friends of Hitler. Friends of Hitler. Hitler had friends at some point uh, before he uh, the witchcraft that he was involved in, uh, in so many words, took over. Uh, and uh, Rabbi Yosef Ben Porat actually has a lecture about it, and they recently really, you know, did a great job on it. They even have English subtitles uh, on this lecture. If I remember, I'll, I'll publicize it, uh, you know, on the channel. Uh, but anyway, it's a uh, they bring all of the unusual things that happen of how this loser named Hitler, who was a complete loser, degenerate, garbage, for first thirty years of his life, all of a sudden becomes. Uh, an anomaly in all aspects over the next, you know, 25 years. Uh, the first paycheck he ever got was from being a chancellor. Like, it's not a normal thing. Uh, so it's a, uh, the guy uh, was a, uh, how, how did this happen? So some of his uh, friends from childhood and, uh, you know, from even from his early stages of being a Nazi leader, uh, they uh, were very, very close to him, and uh, they knew him, uh, and they knew that he was involved in witchcraft. And uh, they even warned him about it. Uh, they even tried to get him away from it. They, uh, but uh, in so many words, uh, what uh, it was concluded is that certainly he was involved in witchcraft. It's a well-known thing. And so much so that uh, this type of demons, some even say the Satan himself, got the uh, permission to enter Hitler himself, and in so many words, take over. Uh, he got the permission because Am Yisrael married certain sins, and you know that's that's a you know different uh, account altogether. But the point being is, is that it all depends on the level of witchcraft, the level of uh, spiritual impurity a person is involved in, uh, and what it actually ends up yielding. Some people that are involved in the uh, you know basic uh, everyday young people's sins of, you know, immorality, you know, promiscuity and things like that. Certainly they have certain things, but those things can go away if you do tshuva. Other people that are involved in more heavy-duty stuff where it's like an actual profession, their promiscuity and uh, is a profession, then there's a much bigger problem, uh, much more difficulty to get rid of that stuff, but still possible. Uh, and then there is, and then again, if people are involved in idolatry, again, there's a certain amount of difficulty uh, I have some students that Hashem from all over the world that uh, you know they they contact me you know and they send me messages. Rabbi, everything you said is true. <laughs> now I know I said everything I said is true because I don't make it up; it's in the books. But they said no, no, I saw what you say, and you know different people, Baruch Hashem, different people that used to be uh, prostitutes, used to be uh, you know in, involved in all types of idolatry, used to be involved in all types of garbage. Uh, spiritual garbage uh, that Baruch Hashem have done tshuva through different lectures, either myself or others, and uh, literally everything we've talked about in different lectures, I've had people tell me, "Listen, what you said happened to me. What you said happened to me. I don't know why people don't believe this stuff. I saw it." And so the point is, that I'm trying to tell you is that for a idol worshiper or a uh, you know promiscuous person uh, to 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 tell me, uh, you know, that they see strange things, it's it's not a big deal. I mean, I, I would say, I, I can tell you even righteous people that I know that uh, they see strange things. There's a lot of strange things out there. 
not necessarily everybody has the merit to see them. You know, there's some people that uh, uh, I know I'm familiar with, and uh, you know, some I'm even very, very close to. Uh, they see stuff all the time. You know, it's, it's it's not it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Uh, it's my recommendation is, and that's the recommendation from Rabbi Ephraim, is don't pay attention to it. Meaning, if you see stuff, smoke, stuff moving, all types of creepy stuff, don't pay attention to it. The more attention you pay to it, the uh, the more it's uh, going to want to come back and torture you. Uh, so my recommendation is to uh, not pay attention to it at all, act as if it doesn't exist, and simply focus on tshuva specifically with those things that have to do with kedusha, meaning eliminate any form of idolatry from your life that's a given. But even more so, sanctify yourself when it comes to the issues of morality. Don't waste seed. Don't be immodest. You know, try to get people to do tshuva for those things because that's the only fix. That's the only fix to those things. Uh, they don't just go away uh, just because you don't like them. And, uh, and they have permission to go uh, wherever they want, in so many words, uh, while you're sleeping, while you're half dead, while you're alive, during the day. It doesn't make a difference. They can do whatever they want. Again, it all depends on different powers. Some are nothings. Some are, you know, they don't have any strength. Some you could just say a prayer and they're gone. Uh, others are more serious. I don't even no idea why you guys ask these types of questions, but or well, maybe I have these types of answers. I'm not sure which one's at fault. But uh, ideally, it's not the I, you know, best thing to talk about at night. Uh, yeah, yeah. What age should girls be allowed to wear makeup and get a manicure pedicure? What age should girls be allowed to wear makeup and get manicure pedicure? Uh, it all depends on what you mean by makeup, manicure, pedicure. If you mean to preserve themselves, wear a little blush, and you know have a uh, their nails painted in modest colors. Not like witch nails that are, you know, four times the normal size, or or, or and and then uh, start showing off their feet and you know and, and to everybody that walks, that's never allowed. So if you mean modest, modest things, then you know yeah, once she's a uh, already getting ready for shiduch, uh, then uh, that that would be the appropriate time. It shouldn't be before that because it could entice her to do sins. Uh, should be at a time where she's ready to go on a shiduch, uh, to get married, then yeah. But uh, if it's you're talking, if what you mean by makeup and manicure and pedicure is to look like, you know, the Hollywood people, and uh, she has all types of colors all over her face, and all types of uh, nails that are longer than the exile, and toes that are shinier than the sun, that's never allowed. Even after she's married, he's not allowed to do that. Attractive, not attracting. That's the key. Shalom Aleichem, Chazir's woman, Kiyat Yoel. Okay, I'm heartbroken. I woke up Shabbat night, used the bathroom door, and found my husband being inappropriate with his buit. To a filthy video. Shem uh, Embarrassed to ask, Rabbanim in my community, what should I do? Should I divorce him? Should I forgive him? I tried to please him. How 
he wants. I can't believe he did this to me. Uh, he claims it's the first time he broke Shabbat. I just couldn't hold back. Uh, okay, so he didn't do it to you, even though I know you feel horrible about it. He didn't do it to you. He did it to himself. He did it to his relationship with Hashem. And this is something that didn't just happen on Shabbat for the first time. Perhaps he just violated Shabbat for the first time, but the what led him to violate Shabbat is that he's been wasting seed for apparently some time. Uh, and sometimes when a person gets addicted to wasting seed, uh, and uh, it, it gets to a point where they start losing their mind and, and, and they lose control, they feel the need to, to see it. So my recommendation is to have him uh, and I would say even watch it with him, uh, all of our lectures in the playlist that talk about this issue. There's a playlist on our YouTube channel. There's a playlist on our application for Tikkun Abrit, Wasting Seed. There's probably around 120 or so different videos. Most of them are short clips of 5-10 minutes. Some of them are longer, full lectures of 2-3 hours. And there's a few movies, especially the famous movie called Tikkun Abrit. I would have him uh, follow, uh, you know, listen to those lectures in addition to uh, a um, listening to uh, one of our series of lectures that specifically talk about Musar. Uh, there's actually a, a four-step process, a four-step process that I send new people that have this issue and come to me for help. Four-step process of what they need to do in order to overcome this obstacle of addiction to immorality. The first step is to watch the movie Tikkun Abrit. The second step is to watch this short clip called The ABCs of Tikkun Abrit. It's on our channel. The third step is to watch all of the lectures on that playlist that I just told you about. Obviously, you know, uh, this is on a regular basis, not just one time. Meaning that even after he finishes all 150 of them, uh, it doesn't mean that he stops listening forever. That's What happens is that he has to constantly get chizuk, meaning that each week, uh, based on where he's at as far as his weaknesses and his strengths, he'll still have to listen to it from time to time, maybe once a week, twice a week, but still to keep himself strong. Every guy needs it. It's not just him. It's not just your husband. Your husband is not unique and you're not the only victim in the world. This is a common thing both for men and for women in the world today and, and throughout the generations. So I would not divorce him under any condition for this specific act. Now, if he tells you, I don't want to change, I'm going to continue doing it and I care less, that's a different story. But usually men are not that stupid. Uh, usually men, uh, you know, they, once they uh, uh, show any form of embarrassment, usually that means that they know it's wrong, they just are addicted to it. So uh, to help him, I would say is do those first three steps. And the fourth step is to learn Musar on a regular basis. And I believe that our lectures are a very good Musar for, uh, for, uh, for people today, whether they are Frum, Hasidish, uh, Ashkenazi, Sephardi, uh, Nubal, Tshuva, converts, whatever they are, our lectures, Baruch Hashem, have touched many people from all walks of life. Uh, but that's the fourth step. If anybody wants the details of the fourth steps, you could just send me a message on WhatsApp and I'll send you a quick uh, four steps with the links and you could uh, share it, you could uh, uh, use it yourself. It's, it's Baruch Hashem, it's helped thousands and thousands of people, this four-step process. It used to be three. Now it's four, uh, because I realized that the, the fourth step is the continuing education to keep you strong. So uh, it's helped thousands and thousands of people overcome this sin. I've even had people that used to be homosexuals 
overcome that sin because of this. I've had people that uh, had all types of horrible, horrible addictions. Uh, and uh, even some people that used to be prostitutes and, and, and all types of other uh, uh, professions that are uh, in, in, in that world that uh, literally overcame this, uh, this insanity uh, by watching those lectures. So uh, it works. It works, Baruch Hashem. I believe that our shurim about tikkun abrit are better than anything else that you have in the world today. Uh, and I'm not saying that because I am uh, smarter than everybody else or anything else. I just simply don't believe anybody else has brought as much truth uh, and clarity on this specific subject as we have in the English language. In, in Hebrew, there's certainly some great people that have taught this subject over the years. Uh, Rav Daniel Zell speaks about it at least once a year, uh, and, and several others have spoken about it extensively. Uh, and, but uh, Rav Edri speaks about it regularly, so there's plenty of uh, you know good people in in in, in uh, Hebrew, but in English, uh, no one has spoke about it as extensively, uh, as openly, and as clearly as we have uh, on this subject, and as often. Uh, so uh, more than any institution, including some of the ones that are very popular and get hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in donations for, I don't know what they do, but uh, simply put, there's no institution right now that has as much information about the subject uh, as that playlist that you get for free from us. So take advantage of it. This woman is a lunatic who posts things against students of the Rabbi Reuven. Question is fake too. Um, she could post things against me. You could say things that could make a difference. Whether a question was fake or not, certainly it's real for somebody. Certainly it's real for somebody. Uh, question. Is it permitted to be a horse breeder, which entails manually getting the male horse to release seed into a bottle? Uh... Yeah, I mean, there's no issue of wasting seed for animals, uh, and breeding is certainly some uh, is, is something that does happen in the world. Uh, I mean, it's, if you're a Jew, you know, again, it's it's not the ideal uh, profession for, for for Jews, I would say, but uh, there's certainly some form of uh, uh, you know there are things like this that happen. It's not uh, uh, it's not uh, again so long as it's not doing it with different species, as long as it's within the same species and things like that. But, um, you know, again, it's, uh, uh, there's nothing that I, uh, you know, I say it's forbidden about it if it's just normal, meaning it's not, you know, uh, trying to breed different animals and crossbreeding and things like that. If it's just simply producing better quality uh, horses or better quality uh, other animals, there's no problem with it, as long as it stays within the same species, because the kilaim, uh, which is crossbreeding, uh, is forbidden both for Jews and for Gentiles, according to the Torah. So that's, uh, you know, but if you're talking about just traditional breeding, there's nothing wrong with it. It's obviously not going to be something that uh, everyone is inclined to do or wants to do, but it's it's a necessary profession in the world. It's, it's not. It's not a new thing. Uh, everywhere there's a needy person among you, one 
of your kin. What are you saying here? You're just quoting somebody from Mitzvah. Oh, so several of you, of you are familiar with this person are saying what they asked is a fake question. I don't think it's a fake question. Uh, I don't think it's a fake question because number one, like I said, not only is it, um, it doesn't matter whether it's a qu real question for, for that person or not. That question is very much a real question for somebody today that's watching it or tomorrow or next week or week. I've, I mean, I deal with people all day. I get 500 to 1,000 messages a day. And a large part of them are people that are having all types of, um, you know, immorality addictions and, and the like. So these are very, very real questions that are coming from uh, people from all walks of life, religious, non-religious. Uh, you know, um, it's, it's not, it's not a, uh, it's not, it's not so unusual to me. But if this person wants to uh, make fun, you know, it's a, there's nothing funny about it. It's a real question that presents a problem and. I can tell you the Gemara Masechet Megillah says that if you use euphemism and minimize parts of the Torah, then the Torah says we quiet them. Quiet them uh, is, is, is a uh, not a good uh, not a good thing. When Hashem, when Hashem silences a person, it usually doesn't mean something favorable. So if they're making fun, like what you guys are suspecting, then all they did to themselves is uh, bring a disaster. Uh, but still, we benefited from it because somebody needs to learn. So it's no problem. What does it mean that tshuva for Chilul Hashem begins at death? Usually it's said that we can do tshuva only while alive. Uh, also, doesn't someone lose their Allah for this sin? Uh, so how can they uh, get back? Okay, so the Gemara in Masechet Yoma, uh, page 86a. Uh, it talks about it. there's different types of sins that uh, a person that does tshuva for them, uh, they can't. It's not enough to just say I'm sorry. Some it's enough to say I'm sorry. Some you have to say I'm sorry, but also pray extra and wait for Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is an auspicious time where that's when the sin will be forgiven for officially. Some say no, it's not just uh, say I'm sorry and Yom Kippur, but they have to have some suffering some suffering in their life uh, in order for that sin to be erased. And some, even Yom Kippur and suffering is not enough. Even Yom Kippur. Meaning that that sin will be uh, still on their record until they die. The way they have to suffer for that sin in the next world. Unless they uh, rectified with Kiddush Hashem. But uh, the point is, is that it's still on a person's record. It's like, uh, you know, a person has a uh, criminal record from uh, 20 years ago. 20 years ago, he robbed the bank. 20 years ago, he beat somebody up. But he's been clean and perfect for the last 20 years. But still, if he wants to work for some, you know, well-respected firm, and they look at his uh, record, and they say, wait, what's going on over here? You beat up somebody 20 years ago? Why would you beat up anybody? He goes, no, I was a different person back then. And even if they agree with us, it, like, ah, listen, we, we appreciate it, but it's hard for us to justify hiring somebody with that uh, record from 20 years ago when we have plenty of people looking for the same job without that record. So it's still on the record. 
So in essence, the Chilul Hashem, even if a person did shuva for it, meaning they said, I'm sorry, they're doing everything possible to not repeat the sin, but still it's on their record until the day that they die because there's a certain type of suffering that they have to get for it in the next world. There's a certain amount of suffering they'll get for it in this world. There's a certain amount of uh, repentance they have to do on, on Yom Kippur, but there's special type of suffering uh, for them in the uh, next world. Uh, are you still being a sponsoring Rav for people converting? Um, only people that are local to me and uh, generally speaking, I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of people that I help as far as people that are on the, um, you know, we have a conversion group and uh, people watch the, le- you know, get updates over there and uh, they, uh, they get, you know, like the lectures and different campaigns that we have. And then sometimes people send me certain questions and I'll, I try my best to answer. Uh, especially people that are serious and people that I know are, you know, uh, are people that are able and interested to, to convert in the near future. You know, I usually try to invest more time in them than I do people that uh, may not convert for another five years, either because they don't have the ability to financially or because they're too young or because they're married to somebody who doesn't want to convert. So I try to... Uh, prioritize certain things, but uh, as far as actually taking people to the Bed-Din, uh, I used to do it with people regardless of where they were all over the world, but over uh, you know recent uh, last couple of years, I've only been doing it with people that are local to me, uh, you know, only people that are living in Florida, and that's the way it's going to stay. I'm not going to uh, uh, continue taking on any new students that are outside of Florida. It's just too much headache. Uh, and there's uh, too much of a problem sponsoring people from afar. You have to rely on other rabbis and whether they're telling you the truth and lies. And to be honest with you, once I uh, once I uh, open up Bezal Hashem, the, uh, the shul, the uh, Bet Midrash, uh, I'm going to officially stop taking anybody uh, f- that doesn't live in our community. Meaning that even if they live in Florida, but they don't live in our community, I wouldn't help them. Like I could, you know, send them our lectures, they could join our group, but for me to take them to a Bedin, it's only going to happen if they would live in our community. And the reason for that is not because I think everyone else is bad and we're good, but rather because the only way that I could be sure that somebody is good uh, and, and is somebody that I want him and I want her to be part of Am Yisrael, and they're not lying to me and they're not part of the wrong community, they're not going to be part of some idol-worshipping uh, uh, Jewish cult, they're going to be part of you know real Judaism is if they're literally under my umbrella now right now I don't have the capability of having people being next to me because uh, I don't have the shul yet but once we do then we're going to become even more strict with uh, who we sponsor and who we don't now I've helped people from all over the world but little by little over the last few years we've minimized it more and more uh, you know with uh, the only people that I've helped that don't live next to me are people that have already been with me for a few years uh, so they, you know, I couldn't just kick them out. So I helped them, you know, they were already with me and, you know, I was already in the process. But as far as new people, I'm not taking on anybody already for a while that uh, doesn't live next to me. Um, what Judaica item can a, uh, can they get for a 12-year-old boy that is anti-Torah? Uh, the best, best possible Judaic item that you can get a 12-year-old that's anti-Torah is if you go to bezratashem.org, you go to the store, you go to the USB section, you order the USB collection. 
or you go to the Kiruv package. One of those two, because the Kiruv package has a couple of USBs in it and some other books, or you can get the USB package. Those are the best possible Judaica item that you can get on planet Earth for a 12-year-old or 20-year-old or 50-year-old. Uh, you know, that is anti-Torah. Best thing, you can get them. And in fact, you can even get to people that are not anti-Torah. That's uh, best present. Highly recommended. Uh, can someone take a non-kosher medication, not for an illness, but for some kind of beneficial effect? Uh, as far as medication is concerned, if it does not have taste, meaning if it uh, has a bad taste or no taste, such as aspirin or a vitamin or, or whatever it is, but it doesn't have a taste, the pill uh, or the, uh, the, you know, the liquid or whatever it is doesn't have a taste or it's disgusting, that even a dog wouldn't eat it, then it does not need to be kosher. So you could consume it for whatever you want, whether it's for medicinal reasons or for beneficial reasons. But if it does have a taste, such as sweeteners, you know, like they have certain, uh, uh, you know, things that uh, taste sweet, you know, cough drops that uh, taste good, and uh, whatever, other types of medicine that taste good, especially kids' medicine. Uh, but if an adult takes kids' medicine, it's a problem. Uh, so if it has good taste, then it needs to be kosher. It needs to be kosher. Gaz is allowed to show a bidder the competitor's estimate before they submit their pricing. It's allowed to show a bidder the competitor's estimate before they submit their pricing. Oh, you mean the uh, uh, if somebody is selling a job and he already has somebody else offering the uh you know to do the job and then there's somebody else that wants the job and uh he wants to put a bid in and you want to tell them what the other guy did if it's full disclosure where everybody knows that you're going to disclose the bids to everybody there's no problem but if only that guy that sees the bid knows that he's getting that bid uh then it's a gnevadat you're stealing everybody else's mind because they're all assuming that you're not going to give any favorable treatment to anybody else uh, so you're going to fair rules for everybody because if they knew that you're going to give them favorable terms, they wouldn't put waste their time and put the bid. So it's called gnevadat. It's stealing their mind. Uh, so no, you're not allowed to do that. But if it's fair game for everybody, anybody that asks can get to see the estimates and the prices for everybody, then sure, no problem showing it. Uh, if one forgot to shut off the automatic light that turns on the fridge before Shabbat, is one allowed to open the fridge on Shabbat? And if one accidentally opened the fridge with the same situation with the light on, is one allowed to close it? And the answer is no to both. Uh, because if you know for sure that you opening the fridge will turn on the light, you're not allowed to uh, open that fridge. So find some cookies and some crackers and uh, live what we've all lived through at some point or another when we had that same screw-up happen to us. Uh, everybody's had that happen to them. And the same thing if the fridge is uh, open. If the fridge is open, you know, that you're closing it, you're going to shut off the light, can't close it. Can't close it. So food's going to get ruined. Eh. I mean, if you have a goy that, uh, you know, you could uh, hint to, uh, if I, uh, uh, you have a child that you could, you know, bring him to the room and, you know, don't tell him to do it, but they do it, 
you know, that's a, uh, but generally speaking, if it's just uh, adults in there, it's a problem, but it happens to all of us. It happens to all of us. Uh, my recommendation, and again, you don't have to listen to me. This is not a logic recommendation. This is my personal preference. Um, my my preference is to eliminate as many. My personal preference is to eliminate as many uh, responsibilities that uh, that I can. Uh, you know, especially before Shabbat. But uh, needless to say, as many responsibilities that require for me to remember them, like to do lists and and, and things like. Uh, so what I do is uh, what we did in my house is um is uh we actually disconnected the light you know we used to put the tape on the light to shut off the light but uh, you know what happened is that uh at least once the tape uh you know like came off like it wasn't strong enough so with so many it means that you know the, the the light went on so that was a problem uh, so the best thing that we did is we simply just shut off the light. Uh, and uh, since the fridge that we have couldn't shut off the lights, we just disconnected them altogether. We removed the lights. Uh, so why? Because, number one, uh, I don't want that problem again. It could be a very costly and, 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 and difficult problem to, to have you know, this issue happen to you on Shabbat and holiday, especially if it's a long holiday. Uh, and number two, uh, it's a... Um, it's not necessary to have a light in a fridge. I mean, how big is your fridge that you need a light? I don't, you know, it's, a, it's not necessary. I mean, uh, so so that's the thing. It's just not necessary to have a, you know, it's nice to have light in the fridge, but it's not necessary. For me, it's not worth it. It's not worth the headache. So we, dis- we disconnected it all together. Again, you don't have to follow what I do. That's what I do. I'm sure that many other people don't do that. But for me, that's the perfect solution. But if, uh, you know, if somebody doesn't want to do that, they simply have to remember to shut off their lights before Shabbat. Um, why does it seem to be negative attitude towards dogs, specifically among Orthodox Jews? Does the Torah say anything good or bad about dogs? I actually have a uh, short clip about dogs in regards to Judaism. So you can watch that clip. In so many words, there was a... Uh, uh, dogs are uh, on one end called dogs they're called kelev because they're very loyal to their master but they're also very uh you know they have no shame they're an animal that has no shame so they uh the way that they procreate and so on they are uh have a certain curse on them that they got at the um uh tevat noach when there was a flood uh there was three uh uh that mated in the uh, in the you know it was forbidden to mate the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin says it was forbidden, Hashem decreed that it was forbidden for anybody to uh, cohabitate uh, in, the, uh, in the Ark, uh, not only because of uh, uh, room and things like that, but also because, and mo- uh, modesty, but also because the world was being destroyed. How could you be celebrating by doing such a thing? But three creatures violated the decree. One of them was the crow, the second one was the dog, and the third one was Ham. Ham, the, the son of, of, of Noach. And from there came Canaan, uh, which eventually uh, also, uh, uh, you know, came the, uh, the, a lot of enemies of Am Yisrael. So anyway, the, um, uh, the dog is a, uh, got cursed because of this, because they procreated in the, uh, in the ark. 
uh, but they also are got a blessing because they didn't bark uh, you know when we were leaving Egypt and therefore there's a blessing for dogs uh, that uh, you know that any spare meat you give to the dog uh, meat that's taref you give to the dog so how do you balance all of this out the fact that the dog is is is, is not a uh, modest or uh, you know not a uh, um, uh, is an immoral animal if you will it's, it's 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 different than other animals the way that it procreates is very different it's an animal without shame it, it stays in a position for a while uh, in so many words that is a reality there's nothing we can do about that is it a loyal animal yes it's a loyal animal it could be a very useful animal a very good animal uh, so a person needs to know that uh, as far as uh, uh, Judaism doesn't have a negative view of anything uh, that is not against the Torah so it's not against the Torah uh, to have a animal but there are sins that you can make with the animal for example uh, you know touching the animal and petting it on Shabbat is a problem why because the animal is considered mukze. but it's not just dogs it's cats it's ducks somebody asked me about ducks today ducks are also not allowed to touch them on uh, on, on Shabbat uh, you know so also when you walk a, a dog you have to be very careful to have, be, have a short leash if it's on Shabbat so there's specific laws you need to know with dogs last but not least because the dog is an impure animal uh, the uh, it's it's a very bad idea to have uh, a dog uh, you know living in your house needless to say living in your bedroom uh, so you know many times people have the animals live in their bedroom and sleep with them in the bed and everything that's not a good thing uh, spiritually speaking but uh, as far as uh, you know are there good things about animals yes I mean I have a video I have a video that's a short movie where I talk about my uh, dog that passed away years ago he was a fantastic dog I had him for 16 years his name was bully I've spoken about them over the years in, in, in different lectures I think that dog learned more Torah than any other dog in his generation I think bully was the gadola do of <laughs> of the generation of dogs a lot of Torah that dog listen I had lectures and he was in the room and he was always very quiet and, and good so you know the uh, dogs can be okay it's just that you need to know how to treat them and how to deal with them as far as uh, according to the Torah there's no negative viewpoint against dogs they're a creation but you need to know that there are negative things that you can do with it and there's also positive things you can do with it so with that being said thank you very much everyone for learning with me I appreciate it and Hashem bless each and every single one of you anyone that wants to uh, donate and support uh, what we do go to bhtorah.org or to bezratashem.org or you can donate on the YouTube channel the YouTube channel now has a little uh, money sign or something under the videos where you could support us you could sign up to a subscription I think it's like 20 or 50 or 200 dollars a month whatever you want uh, please sign up if you can if you could afford it and you're, you're watching us there certainly a good thing to do uh, or you can donate online on our websites so either way thank you very much and now also a reminder anyone that is in the world of technology familiar with especially things like uh, um, coding uh, or really anything in, in, in technology that you think we can use and you want to volunteer at our organization uh, you know please uh, please let us know or even if you have some unique technology that you think can help us please uh, reach out and uh, we'd be happy to uh, look into it we're very very much into technology and uh, trying to be 
uh, to use it for the benefit of uh, Am Yisrael and the Torah. So thanks again for everything. School of Mitzvot. Mitzvot Hashem. We'll learn again together next week. Kol Tuf.